the different ways in which God chooses to reveal himself. Like if you were to ask, like if I were God, like how would I reveal myself to everyone? Like I don't know if I'd choose a bullhorn from heaven, if God would send out bullet points on a list in terms of this is what you need to know about me. He's got lots of options available to him, but what God settles on in terms of how he reveals himself is story. It's the vehicle for truth, especially uh, for a Hebraic or Jewish background. Like if you wanted to communicate truth, you wouldn't begin with just a propositional statement or a bullet point. You would tell a story, and then the story would be the truth. And so you would sit down and let me tell you about these seven days of creation. You would tell a whole story in which you're trying to communicate a truth about God. Stories are powerful. You love a good book or a good movie based on its story. And English teachers will tell you that there are five elements to a good story that make up a good story. One is setting. And and so you know that you're attracted to some settings over others. Some of you might be into, like, historical pieces. So a movie or a book set in the 1800s just right up your alley. Others of you love science fiction. And so a story that's way out in the future, that's the setting. But you have different settings that you might be drawn to. Characters, we want a story that has interesting characters that hook us in and that we get to move along in terms of their life story. We want Nothing's worse than following a story or a book and in the end thinking, I don't like any of these characters and I'm not attracted to any of them in any particular way. Plot, that has to be movement. We need to be going somewhere in terms of the story. Conflict, every good story has conflict. Everyone, without exception. See, if if I were to tell you, like, I woke up this morning, I brushed my teeth, then I went to the store, and then I drove down Miami Street, you wouldn't hang with that very long because it's boring. There's no conflict in it. But if I said, and then somebody pulled out a gun and held me up, then all of a sudden we're on pins and needles listening intently to the story. It has to have conflict. And then finally it has to have resolution. That doesn't mean that in the end everything works out right. I mean, that might be your favorite movies and books where it has a happy ending. Resolution just means that conflict took us somewhere and it ended up in this particular way. Setting, characters, plot, conflict, resolution. We love a good story. And you might have fond memories as a child of listening to stories. This past week, we took uh, my grandmother, Mima. She was at the 9 o'clock service out to lunch because I wanted her to tell me the stories of our family. I didn't know who my great-grandparents were, her parents, or her, gra- her grandparents, her siblings. And so we sat at Fiesta Tapatia, and she just shared the story of her family. Tell me about my great-grandparents. And so she told me a story about my great-great-grandfather, Absalom Collins is his name. Did you know I have a great-great-grandfather named Absalom Collins? I didn't either until this week. I think I'd go nuts on that Ancestry.com website. Like, I would just spend days on that. So I wanted my, my grandmother to tell me all about her siblings. She had seven of them. Mathis, Vanita, Velma, Wilbur, Wilma Helen, Emma Jean, Bud, and Mary Lou. Isn't that great? Like, that is as hick as you get. I'm like, yes, we're hicks. All right. Mary Lou, my grandmother, she's the baby of the family. And that's me, Mom. I want to know about their personalities. What were they like? And she just shared stories. I want to know how they died. I think most of them from cancer, which doesn't help my OCD at all. But every once in a while, you'd get a juicy story. Like the time that her dad, I guess my great-grandfather, Frank Collins, his best friend Charlie, when he was 50 years old, married his daughter, who was only 25 years old, my grandmother's sister, because his first wife gambled away all of his money and then went home and shot herself. In those moments, you lean into the story. Or the time that my grandmother's sister, Vanita, married Herschel Porter, who later tried to kill her, went to prison, died in prison, and then donated his body to science afterwards. That's when you perk up. And you lean in. And you want to know just a little bit more. Now we've got ourselves a good story with setting and character and plot and conflict and resolution. 
See, these stories in the end shape us. They inform us. They give us identity. Sometimes stories can shape our worldviews and values. In fact, one of my favorite techniques that movies or books will often use is, you know how they'll give you a glimpse of a scene at the end of the story, like something very intense that you see going down, and it sucks you in? And then the rest of the movie or the book is to tell you how you got to that place. You know how a movie does that? It kind of starts with a scene at the end, and then it goes to the beginning and tells you this is how we got to that point. And I love when it happens like that. So if you might allow me to indulge for just a moment, I like to do that with the scriptures here. I want you to picture in your mind a scene of an older man of around 65 years of age. Now, I don't mean like 2014 uh, 65-year-old men. I mean like first century Palestine, Eastern culture, where few, few people make it to be 65 years old, but he's 65 years old. He's grown up in a Middle Eastern climate and culture, and he's Jewish, grew up in the land of Palestine. But now it's 70 A.D., and he finds himself in an Ethiopian city named Nadavar, which was reigned over by King Hittichus. And this 65-year-old man is proclaiming the message of Jesus because he believes Jesus has actually sent him to the city to tell everyone the good news of what he's actually seen because he was an eyewitness and an apostle of Jesus himself. And so there he is trying to amass whatever crowds will listen to him to tell them the story about Jesus of Nazareth, uh, how he was the Son of God, how he was the expected Messiah. He goes on trying to wax eloquently from argumentation and what he saw with his own eyes to say, this is Jesus. And I actually, he actually was dead. I saw him. He died on a cross. He was dead for three days and he was raised to life. I saw it with my own eyes. And then after describing the resurrection of Jesus, the crowd starts to get a little restless. They seem a little agonized in some particular way. And then from the crowd, some men grab him. They throw him to the ground. And then different men will hold different limbs, one arm here, one arm there, one leg, another one on another leg on the ground. And they'll take large stakes and pin him to the earth so he cannot get out and he cannot get up. And then emerging from the crowd will be a man who will be holding in his hand a pike with an axe head fixed to the top of it, and he'll come up to the 65-year-old man and cut his head off. He'll behead him in front of the entire crowd. The scene is shocking, and it's horrific, and it's violent, and it's bloody, and it's gory. Then picture after this scene, two men standing watching the whole thing, one saying to the other, he used to be a Roman tax collector under Herod Antipas in Capernaum of Galilee, to which the other responds, what? Are you serious? A Jewish tax collector. How in the world did he go from being a tax collector to now a religious fanatic and now martyr of this Jesus guy? To which the response is, let me tell you a story. And this will be Matthew's story. And it will go like this. I want you to imagine what it would be like to be disliked by just about everyone around you. Now, that will be easier for some of you than others, but just imagine nobody likes you. Picture in your mind what it would be like to go everywhere and know that nobody really cares. It isn't so much that they find you morally reprehensible, although that is part of the equation, but they actually find you to be a traitor of sorts, like you're a traitor. Picture, if you would, um, like I guess we're in conflict with Russia again now, kind of slightly over this Crimea thing, uh, which I don't know how to feel because movies were better when we were antagonistic with Russia, like Rocky on 4 was great. You know, they were never the Red Dawn, the first one, much better. Like that's kind of the world I lived in. Um, Picture, just imagine for a moment that we went to war with Russia and they won. 
And what happened is now that even though you're in South Bend, Indiana, we are now living under the occupation of the Russians. So every time you walk out of your house, you see signs of Russian occupation. They're flying the flag. You see Russian soldiers everywhere. And we're no longer free. All the freedoms that we're used to, now all of a sudden we've got to show our papers on who we are and prove where we've been and where we're going to. And so the Russians are in charge, and there's, there, there's signs of that everywhere. We're now living with the threat of imprisonment and death, subject to having our property or our money confiscated by those who are occupying us, the Russians. All of our normal freedoms and resources gone and being taken from us and used for Russian purposes. And finally, out of the frustration that that is, out of that context, you find out that one of your neighbors, who's an American, is actually starting to work for the Russians. Like, they're helping them pinpoint possible American rebels and helping them identify where the money and resources are and actually helping the Russians take what's yours and giving it to them, a fellow American. That's what it would be like to look at Matthew. Or maybe uh, another illustration, you know how sometimes somebody commits a crime, it's famous and goes public on CNN, on Fox all the time. So, like, could you imagine being Casey Anthony here? I mean, I imagine she can't go anywhere the rest of her life without people seeing her and going, that's Casey Anthony. And everyone having opinions and thoughts about her and her guilt and how she got away with murder and what she did to the baby, blah, blah, blah. Or, I don't know, this is a Ted the Smith. Anyone know who this is? Anyone know who that is? Anyone? Jonathan Pollard is his name. He's actually a South Bend native, graduated from Riley High School. My debate coach let me know that I sat in his seat at Riley High School. I don't know what that means, but uh, he was convicted of spying for Israel and is serving a life sentence right now. But Jonathan Pollard, I mean, just imagine your mind, just like everyone kind of knows who you are and what you've done and You're ostracized now by the rest of society, and you're looked down upon. People won't let their kids play with your kids. They would at best ignore you in public spaces. At worst, make comments under their breath intended to make you feel small. I imagine Matthew probably heard that all the time as they kind of whispered quietly underneath their breath, Roman 4. When you volunteered to get involved in some sort of part of public life, it was probably met with, you know, no, thank you. We don't need your help. Or when future descendants sit down with their grandmother and want to hear all the stories, that one either gets excluded or it becomes the scandal that you lean into about Uncle Matthew was a traitor. So in the end, you end up hanging out with the only other group of people who seem to accept you, the other morally bankrupt, socially misfit, ostracized, untouchables of society. And in Matthew's day, the holy people had a word for them, the hamartalos. They were the sinners is what they were called. And so you would think to yourself, like, why continue to do this job if everybody hates you for it? Well, in the first century, you didn't have, like, Monsters.com where you could pick a different job or another career. Like, it usually was handed down to you with a family line, or you fell into it because of your life circumstances, and now you've got to provide for your family, or now you need money. So in the end, that isn't really an option to you, so you just kind of go with it. You sort of just kind of, hey, everyone looks at me like the scum of society, then you begin to play into that part. No one likes me anyhow, so screw them. I'm going to do what I want and what's best for me. And next thing you know, you find your life, you start cheating and stealing and swindling and taking advantage of other people's circumstances. And you don't care what people think because you already know what people think of you, and it's so little. And then, in the middle of the story, out of nowhere, one day, perhaps the most famous teacher or rabbi, and I mean really famous, stories about him are circulating everywhere. Everybody has heard of the name Rabboni Yeshua, Rabbi Jesus. He walks by your office, which happens to be a tax collector's booth, and he stops and he looks at you and he says, I want you to follow me. A holy man. We're talking like a teacher of Torah, the law, 
at least by reputation even, maybe a great miracle worker, we at least would concede he's a righteous man, and he's looking at you, Matthew, the scum of the earth, and saying, I want you to follow me. Now, you can imagine the surprise on Matthew and shock on Matthew's face as he probably had to glance around and make sure, are you talking to, to me or are you talking to somebody else? And the response from this great teacher, no, you, I'm, I'm talking to you. I want you to be one of my disciples. I'm going to give you a new life. In fact, why don't you invite all of your friends together and let's go have dinner at your house, which I like Jesus' move here, inviting himself to somebody else's house for dinner. Brilliant. To which Matthew responds, my friends? Yeah, your friends, the people I hang around with. Yes, let's go have dinner together. The hamartolos, the sinners, get them all together. Let's eat dinner together. All right. And so Matthew will recount this story. He'll kind of speak it in the third person, but he'll describe it in Matthew chapter 9, verse 9. It says, and Jesus went on from there, and he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, he told him. Matthew got up, and he followed him. This is a story plot change here. And while Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors, and remember that word, the sinners, the martelos, they came and they ate with him and his disciples. Now, just by way of background, you need to know, they call it like table fellowship was kind of the language for it. And it was a big deal to the Jewish community. Like you didn't just eat with anybody. Because like back then, like if they got cooties, it's going to get on you. So you had to be careful with who you ate with. And you just didn't hang out with people who were known sinners. You just didn't hang because that would rub off on you and people would look poorly on you. And so... You don't do that. And here Jesus is. He's even instigated this whole meal sitting with Matthew and his friends. So verse 11, when the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, why does your teacher eat with the tax collectors and sinners? Right? This, really? And when Jesus heard this, his response is simply this. It's not the healthy who need a doctor. It's the sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. I have not come to call the righteous but the hamartalos, the sinners. And from that moment, Matthew's whole life story changes. This rabbi proves to give new life and new purpose and new hope, a second chance acceptance when you clearly don't deserve it. And then after spending three years with this teacher, you become absolutely convinced without a shadow of a doubt because of everything you've seen and you've heard and you've experienced firsthand. This is not just some rabbi. This is the very Messiah that we've been waiting for. This is the Son of God, the Son of the living God. And he picked me. I'm talking a dirty, filthy, looked down upon, traitor of the Jewish people, a Roman tax collector. This is my story. And after encountering Jesus, you can imagine Matthew, he's just thinking, i got to tell everybody. Like, I, I have to tell all my friends, all my family, anyone who will even listen to me at this point in my life about this man. You have as your one and only goal and ambition to convince everybody that the guy that called you to follow him, this man, this Rabboni Yeshua, was the Messiah. And so you even sit down at one point with parchment and pen in hand to tell your story. And you write it out. It will have characters. It will have setting. It will have plot. It will have conflict. It will have resolution. You tell your story. You write it out, what you know, what you saw, what you experienced. And Matthew will tell his story from his perspective, from his bent, from his angle, reflective of his own culture and his own understandings and proclivities. And he'll tell his story. And Matthew will have a particular emphasis because Matthew's own life story is now merging with Jesus and will shape how he speaks it. So Matthew will recount not the Messiah that all the religious leaders were expecting. I mean, they had a very clear, systematic view of, now when the Messiah shows up, this is going to happen, this is going to happen, this is going to happen. And when Matthew writes, he says, yeah, the Messiah, when he showed up, it didn't look anything like that. 
like their main emphasis was not his main emphasis. And Matthew wants everyone to know, no, no, this Messiah, instead of shutting the doors on the scum of the earth, he actually opened it and invited us into the kingdom of God. The least likely suspects get in. That's my story. Even for Matthew himself. You don't understand, Matthew had already probably resigned himself to his fate. He was never going to be counted among God's faithful people, chosen people. Everyone around him was sure to remind him of that, to make him feel that, and tell him the story, Jesus shows up. So when Matthew says in the Sermon on the Mount that Jesus stood up and said, blessed are the poor in spirit, Matthew's thinking, that's me. That's why he records it. Like when Jesus says, blessed are those who mourn, Matthew's thinking, that's me. When Jesus says, blessed are the meek, listen, the meek are like, they're not on the top of society. The meek are on the bottom. The meek don't have power. They're powerless. Matthew's thinking, this is my story. When Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit, when he says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst, Matthew is thinking, that's me. And he'll just recount over and over again about Jesus. He's a man who will turn upside down the legalistic interpretations of the law. He's a man who will actually touch lepers. Like, who does that? No religious leader that I've seen. Like, they've never heard of I mean, he'll go right up to lepers and touch them and heal them. Matthew will tell this story about, about one day there was a Roman centurion who comes to Jesus because he's got a servant who's dying, and he asks Jesus to heal him. And Jesus will say back, I, I see faith, and he'll heal him. Now, we've read that story so many times, we kind of miss it, but what was profound about it for Matthew and his story is, he's a Roman soldier. He's a Gentile. He's on the outside of God's chosen people, and Jesus will say, here's a man with faith. This is Matthew's story. And this is why he recounts it. He'll talk about a man who could calm the seas, a man who doesn't avoid the demonized, but actually enters right into their space of life and speaks healing and release and freedom. A man who could heal the paralyzed and give sight to the blind. And I even saw him raise a dead girl back to life again and hand her to her family. About a man who, through story, explained that the kingdom of God was far different than anyone had imagined. In fact, it was open to those who would receive that man by faith about a man who, instead of returning evil for evil, determined to march right to the cross and demonstrate the power of love and forgiveness to change the world, about a man who was dead, like we saw him dead three days, and then he came back to life, and I'm telling you, I believe he's now sitting at the right hand of God. That's what happened. Matthew's life story intersected with God, and he saw it with his own eyes, and he experienced it himself, and now he has a story. And so when you ask the question, How does a 65-year-old man proclaiming the resurrection of Jesus Christ get martyred, who used to be a tax collector? It's through story. This is what happened. One day I received an invitation to begin a new chapter of life. A story which Matthew's story and Jesus' story would be intertwined. This is the power of Matthew's story. I don't know if you were around in the 1990s as I was. If you were... You might be familiar with the name and story that surrounds Jeffrey Dahmer. Have you heard the name Jeffrey Dahmer, who that is? I remember uh, in the 90s watching the news of the things that they were discovering and all the things that were coming out about Jeffrey Dahmer. He was perhaps one of the most notorious serial killers in the modern era, particularly because of the gruesome nature of the crimes that he committed. He was also known as the Milwaukee Cannibal, and in the end was known to have committed rape, murder, and dismemberment of at least 17 that they could prove men and boys between the ages of, or between the years of 1978 and 1991. 
and the stories that came out of exactly how he killed them and what happened to their dead bodies was truly disturbing. It was one of those things where if you want to see the face of evil, like when you saw Jeffrey Dahmer, I think I'm looking at the face of complete evil. He was ultimately convicted to 15 life sentences, a total of 943 years in prison. And so Jeffrey Dahmer, the convicted killer, began serving his sentence at Columbia Correctional Institute in Portage, Wisconsin. Now, if ever there was someone rejected and hated by everyone, it's Jeffrey Dahmer. Matthew might have been a hated tax collector, but at least he wasn't a gruesome serial killer. And who in their right mind would see Jeffrey Dahmer and have compassion? Like, I mean, I remember even my own feelings, like watching him on the news, thinking, that dude should fry. Like, that's just kind of the emotions that come out of you, like, when you're watching those things. Yet here in the United States, two different individuals in two different parts of the country, one in Virginia, one in Oklahoma, began to see Jeffrey Dahmer in subsequent interviews, and somehow, miraculously, they had an ounce of compassion. It might have just been, but at least an ounce of compassion that welled up into their hearts. One was a 69-year-old woman named Mary Mott who lived in Arlington, Virginia, and she saw one day Jeffrey Dahmer being interviewed on MSNBC with Stone Phillips next to his father. And after the interview, the only thing she could conclude was that that young man doesn't know anything except evil. That's what she said. So she actually picked up the phone to the prison that Jeffrey Dahmer was staying in and from one of the guards learned how to send materials to Jeffrey Dahmer. So not knowing whether he would really get it or if he'd find it to be a positive thing, she sent to him a Bible and 12 World Bible School Correspondence Courses. And then on April 1st, Jeffrey Dahmer sent back a letter to Mary Mott thanking her for the Bible and the study lessons and wrote a note. I want to accept the Lord. Would you please try to find someone to bring a baptistry tank to the prison? And in that letter, Dahmer also signed a statement acknowledging he wanted to accept Christ. And so once Mary Mott got that letter, she got back on the phone, convinced that God could forgive sins, all sins. And she saw a lot. She retired in 1975 with a 32-year career with the Defense Department. So she began calling area ministers to see if anyone would be willing to actually go into the prison and baptize Jeffrey Dahmer. After many attempts that proved unfruitful, she finally got a hold of a man named Roy Ratcliffe, who was a preacher of a church in Wisconsin. Now later he would commend her spirit that drove her to do such a thing when other people advised against it for her and to those who so calmly despised Jeffrey Dahmer. Now, Within that same week, there's another man who lived in Oklahoma who had a prison ministry. His name was Curtis Booth. Usually he did just prison ministry there in the area of Oklahoma, but in 1994 he caught a glimpse of Dahmer on television, and he concluded, based on Dahmer, Dahmer said that he wished he could find a little peace, he concluded that I know someone who can give him peace, and it was Jesus Christ. So Booth sent Dahmer a Bible correspondence course with the steps of salvation, and Dahmer answered back and thanked Booth for the course writing this, but I still have one problem. This prison does not have a baptismal tank, and Mr. Burke of the prison chaplain's not sure if he can find someone to bring a tank in and baptize me. I've taken all other steps. So Curtis Booth began calling area ministers in the area. You know who he ended up calling? Roy Radcliffe. So based on both Curtis and Mary's conversations, Roy Radcliffe was able to set up an April 20th meeting with Jeffrey Dahmer. After returning on the April 20th meeting with Dahmer, Radcliffe said he began working with the prison officials on whether or not a baptistry tank could be shipped into this maximum security prison. When finally the prison officials offered the whirlpool that was already in the prison, to which Radcliffe and Dahmer agreed. 
And then Radcliffe would begin to go in every single week and study with Jeffrey Dahmer. So eventually he baptized him on May 10th, 1994. Radcliffe later shared that Dahmer told him at the very first meeting he was afraid. He was sure that he would probably respond to him like everyone else did, telling him that you're too evil, you're too sinful, I can't baptize someone like you. And both Mary and Curtis Booth discovered that not all preachers are willing to go in. They were kind of scared to do so. After the baptism, Mary Mott got a call from Roy Ratcliffe to tell her about the baptism. She said it was really exciting, and it's all the glory to God. In his career as a minister and evangelist, Radcliffe would say he's baptized people in rivers and creeks, but never anyone so well-known. He would later go on to write a book talking about his time with Jeffrey Dahmer and why he believed he was sincere and all the changes that began to take place. For the next seven months, after Dahmer's behind-the-bars baptism, Radcliffe served as his pastor and visited him every week to disciple him and lead him in Bible study until he was killed in November 1994, beaten to death by a fellow inmate. And he later went on to write a story about his encounter and story of Jeffrey Dahmer. I say this to say, if you're asking who was one of the least likely suspects, I'm going to say Jeffrey Dahmer. Now, there are probably people in the world that you don't care for. I hope they're not Jeffrey Dahmer-like, but there are probably people in your world that you don't care for. And those around you probably don't care for them either, for whatever reason. Maybe they've committed some crime. Maybe they've done something morally reprehensible to you. Or maybe they're just jerks and you don't like them, and no one else does either. Maybe it's a family member. Maybe it's a coworker, Maybe it's a neighbor. I wonder if they might be on that list. If I ever said to you, like, who's the least likely suspect in your life to come to know Jesus? Does anyone come to mind for you? If that person, you love them, like somehow they're in your, they're somehow in your network of relationships. When you think about people who are, like would ever give their life to Jesus, you're like, that's, if they walked in the church, the walls really would fall down on top of itself, which is what everybody says when they walk in the church the first time. Uh, but they come to your mind. What I'd say is, they might be like Matthew. And let me challenge you this week to begin praying for that person or those around you. To begin praying for eyes to see people like Jesus sees them. I mean, everybody else walks by Matthew and they hate him. But Jesus doesn't. He loves him because he sees something in his life that Matthew doesn't even see himself. Begin to ask God to give you eyes like Jesus to see people around you like Jesus sees them. So when you don't just walk by them hating them or despising them or just plain out ignoring them, that you might see something in them that they don't even see in themselves, that what you see is the potential of their life story, as crazy as it is, being intertwined with Jesus' life story and it being for them a new chapter of life. One in which someday they'll be able to look back when they say, let me tell you the story of what happened before I met Jesus and after. You'll be included in that story of that next chapter turn. Or it's quite possible this might be your story, that you're sitting there thinking about yourself. I am the most, I am the least likely suspect for Jesus to ever love me. What happens is lots of things come to your mind, sins in your past, things that you've done, and you're thinking to yourself, there's absolutely no way that God can love me or be able to accept me. And I'd say, eh, listen, you're no Jeffrey Dahmer. And Matthew has a story, and you've got a story. And it's quite possible that your story and Jesus' story is intertwining for a whole new chapter. But this is the power of story. And this is what I want to encourage you with as we reflect over the next four weeks. Stories, your story, the God's story, how they merge together to give him glory. Let's pray together. Father, we come to you and are grateful that you are God who does not leave us alone but rather encountered each one of us. And so we thank you, God, for our stories that include a chapter of when we met your son, Jesus. And so we pray that you just continue to build on that story and also through it and in it to give us eyes to see people as you see them, 
opportunities that we might normally walk past or miss altogether. May we acknowledge them. And so we ask for them. And I pray, Father, even at some moment, we might be able to invite somebody else into the story of your son, Jesus. We ask this for your glory. In the son's name.